Good morning, church. I'm filming this video this morning in the event that I'm not able to, to be with you uh, today. As many of you know and have been praying, thank you for praying for my family. My father is not doing well and is presently uh, fighting for his life in the ICU with a bowel obstruction and a number of measures that they're trying to take to, uh, to, to preserve his life. And so we're praying for that. Please, please continue to pray for that. We feel very supported. We're just kind of hunkered down right now, game face, uh, ready to respond to whatever comes our way. But I want you to know that our trust is in the Lord, is absolutely in the Lord. So I'm going to get into the text. It's Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 14 this morning. And uh, just a quick survey in your own mind. Uh, greatness is a funny thing. Uh, I think there is a desire, a great desire for greatness in, in everyone. And I would venture to say that that doesn't ex exclude anyone in the room. But one question I have, though, is where do we want to be great? In what do we want to be great? Do we want to be great in our community? Do we want to be great in our field, in our industry, our vocations? Do we want to be great on a large scale, famous, great in the eyes of the world? Do we want to be great in the eyes of our parents, our family? Uh, ambition for greatness in the kingdom of God, though? Is that in our view? Ambition for greatness in the kingdom of God. Is that an actual category that you consider with intentionality and that you aim at with your life and your effort, your energy? And I, I think a follow-up question is, are, are, are you, are we trading, are we confusing the metrics for greatness according to the world with greatness in God's economy? Economy. In, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been using his life to serve. He's been using his life to make people whole. He has been, since we've seen him in the opening pages of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been giving his life away. And now, in chapter 18, and as we progress through Matthew's gospel, he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem where he will give his life ultimately and where Jesus will suffer greatly. And he has been helping, he's been working hard to help his disciples understand what all of this means. He's been predicting his death and his resurrection, and they aren't, uh, they aren't doing so well at getting the hints that Jesus is trying to to give to them. And so these disciples in the beginning of Matthew chapter 18, which we'll read in just a moment, uh, they come up to him asking the wrong question. But thankfully, Jesus gives them the right answer. Lord, would you teach us to, to ask you the right questions, to aim our life in the right direction? speak through me? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you do work in us, in our minds, and our hearts that only you can do? And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So according to Jesus, what is greatness in God's eyes? What is greatness in the kingdom of God? I want you to open your Bibles for the answer. There are black Bibles around the room. Grab one of those. Go to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, and we're going to read. <clears throat> At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. So 
Jesus has shown them his glory. He's done some miraculous healing. He's been ministering to crowds and crowds of people. They're clamoring for his attention. He's just done this curious thing with Peter and with the disciples. Uh, another miracle and his command to tell Peter to go and to cast a hook into the sea and to pull in a fish and to cut open its belly. And in that fish, he would find payment for this temple tax that they had to pay every year annually. That's where we pick up at that time. The disciples, all of them, all 12, came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children or convert and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin or, to, or for stumbling blocks. For it is necessary that these temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See to it, or see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is God's word. This morning, uh, three clear markers in this text of Jesus' great community. So here's where we're going. Number one. A marker of of Jesus' great community is humility in all of our relationships. We'll see that in verses 1 through 4. In verses 5 through 9, we're going to see that greatness in the kingdom um, is exhibited or displayed by taking responsibility for our sin and by God's grace killing our sin. And then in verses 10 through 14, we'll see that a marker of greatness in God's kingdom is that his people have great confidence in our great shepherd who comes to find us when we wander. So point number one, humility equals greatness in the kingdom of God. Humility in our relationships and how we relate to the world around us equals greatness in the kingdom of God. These disciples, they misunderstand greatness in God's eyes. That's, that's hinted at by this question. Uh, Mark and Luke actually have accounts of this in Mark 9 and Luke 9, and they both give more detail on the whole conversation. And Mark, in his gospel, he tells us that these disciples, they argued with one another about who is greatest in the kingdom of God. So they're like stepping over each other to try to figure out who is going to have power and authority and get to sit at the right hand of the one who has the most authority in the kingdom of God. This is all about, uh, this is all about power for them and prestige, and probably wealth, and privilege. 
And what these guys have is their definition of greatness is the world's definition of greatness. That's their target. But Jesus' definition of greatness is counterintuitive to their thinking, and it's counterintuitive uh, to our thinking as well. And what they're missing in their question is Jesus' lowness. They're missing his humility. They're missing his coming suffering. But according to Mark, Luke, and Matthew, here is greatness in Jesus' eyes. And Mark 9.35, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. In Luke 9.48, for he who is least among you is great. And in Matthew, Jesus uses a child to make his point. He says, truly I say to you, Unless you turn or convert and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And, and one thing, church, I want you to be aware of in this section is the consistent theme in this entire passage, verses 1 through 14, the consistent theme is humility. So I want you to be on the lookout for the ways that humility works itself out throughout this passage throughout the different headings. The application of humility will change as the themes change in this passage, but humility, if you're looking for it, it will stay on display throughout. And so by using a real live child as his illustration, what Jesus does is he talks to grown men and he tells grown men that they have to turn or convert from what they presently are into something that they are no longer. In their view, they see this as a regression. But in Jesus' view, it's progress. R.T. France, he says, this amounts to a total reversal of human value scales. A child was a person of no importance in Jewish society, subject to the authority of his elders, not taken seriously except as a responsibility one who was to be looked after, not to be looked up to. And I want you to listen to this. He writes, To turn and become like children is therefore a radical reorientation from the mentality of the rat race to an acceptance of its significant, insignificance. To become like children is therefore a radical reorientation from the mentality of the rat race climb over one another to get to the top to an acceptance of insignificance. Did you hear that last word? Insignificance. What happens inside you as you imagine that descriptive word being used to describe you on your headstone? Jared Lida, insignificant in the world's eyes. My inclination was to try and categorize all of the humble attributes of a young child. Unless you turn and convert and become like a child. So I'm thinking, okay, what is a child like? We've got things like simple faith. And some of you might say innocent. And it's probably those of you who don't actually have kids that think that that is a marker of a young child, that they're innocent. Really? No. If you have kids, you know that from the outset, they're like stabbing at each other and pinching each other and <laughs> ripping out each other's flesh trying to get what it is that they want. You might think that a child is teachable, and they are easily um, ready to follow. But the more that I spend time in this text, the more that I see that Jesus, he may be including those things. Those things might be wrapped up kind of on the exterior of this definition, 
But what is most likely in view is that to turn and to become like a child means that we turn to accept insignificance, that we turn to accept lowness, to do business with. This might be how the world sees us as insignificant and low, that we take, uh, that we embrace a humble position in the world's eyes and in our own eyes, in our own estimation of ourselves. What if our church grows beyond my skills to lead her? What if I grow this community down to 50? What if my name is never known beyond my city block? What if my great-grandchildren have this legacy of my faith through their parents and grandparents, but what if they forget my name? Stats say they probably will forget my name. What if I invest mightily in some folks and they turn and they forget me in a few years? These are questions that tap deeply on my own sense of worth. And I'm reminded of a, a, an old quote from a German reformer named Nicholas Zenzendorf as he was, a, he was training missionaries and he, he's trying to prepare these missionaries to go out and to possibly uh, lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. And his quote touches on this Matthew 18 insignificance, this way of life. The quote is, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Have you ever heard this before? Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Embrace that. If, if you embrace that, if I embrace that, it frees us up incredibly. And that is one way to live your life. We could word it differently, but I think this quote taps on something important. How I define greatness reveals the kind of greatness that I am pursuing. Questions. Do I have to get my way and have the accolades or do I shout and do I cheer when someone else gets the win? Do I court only the influential people or do I make time for the insignificant ones? Do I disregard kids and children and babies or do I embrace and love them and give them value and dignity and worth? Do I honor them and respect them? What happens when I take on a posture of insignificance and of cheering others on? What does it do to our community? It builds our community up. What happens when you take on a posture of insignificance and of cheering others on. I'm not talking about false humility, woe is me kind of stuff. I'm just talking about outdoing one another and showing honor. What happens when we embrace that and live that out? It builds up our entire community. But when we seek our own gain and when we seek our own way, when we seek our own interests, we damage our community and we dishonor Jesus. So greatness in the kingdom of Jesus is pursuing humility in our relationships, insignificance, outdoing one another and showing honor. And now this text transitions from a definition, a real hearty de definition of kingdom greatness and an illustration of what humility in the kingdom is to a significant warning about the danger of a lack of humility in us. And here's the second point. Greatness in the kingdom is going after the sin in our lives. Look at verses five through nine. In verse two, in the setup, Jesus begins by placing a child in the middle of them. 
But then what Jesus is going to do is he's going to stretch out this picture of, ch of a child to include all citizens of his kingdom, the insignificant ones. In verse 5, Jesus is talking about children. But what he's going to begin to do is expand it, who this includes, to include this term little ones. So keep your eye on that. Little ones represents anyone, any disciple, any sheep in the kingdom of God. Some commentators believe that this entire passage is actually about children. Some commentators believe or take my posture on it that it begins with children and then he begins to draw out, wait, 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 these qualities are actually true and need to be true for all of us. So it could be right either way um, and I could be wrong. And the commentators who see it being all about kids all the way through could be wrong. But I, I think simultaneously both can actually be true in this passage. Regardless of, of kind of where you land on that, focus, don't go on that rabbit trail quite yet, do it later, but notice how Jesus narrows down his warning to include a very low quantity in verse 5. Whoever receives, how many? One such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and and dropped in the ocean. You'll see this quantity, one, trickled seven or eight times all the way through verse 14. And what Jesus is doing here, what Matthew is doing with Jesus' words here, is he's shifting the emphasis from the quantity of disciples to the quality of disciples. The idea is even one person matters. Every one person matters. And Jesus is also issuing a warning about our great enemy, sin. Sin is the great separator between God and man. Sin is man's attempt to live life on his own, to live life on his terms, according to his wisdom, which was actually given to him by God in the first place. Sin is disregarding our maker at its root. Sin kills souls. Sin kills bodies. Sin kills relationships. Sin kills communities. Sin starts wars. And sin lives within us. Every single one of us. Trying to exercise its terrifying power over us and trying to exercise its power through us. Trying to bring death to us and trying to bring death through us. Jesus says in this passage, it's better that you tie basically a concrete block around your neck and, and drop yourself in the deep end of the lake than to cause other people to stumble themselves into sin. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Woe to the one who, uh, who the temptation to sin comes through. This woe is an interjection. In English, it's related to things that, that cause sorrow and distress. It's a moment where he, when he says woe, it, it perks everybody's eyes up. Everybody leans forward. They want to know what's coming. Jesus is stiffly warning here. Temptations are sure to come in this fallen world, but woe to the one whom they come through. 
in the original language, in the Greek, temptation to sin, it's actually just one word. It's scandalizo or scandala, which sounds like the English word for scandal. And this means, this word means stumbling blocks. And uh, according to the Greek here, a stumbling block is anything that you or I do that trips up a fellow disciple, anything that you or I do that hurts or scandalizes their faith. And about that, Jesus offers actually here a striking cure. He offers a cure for it. Whatever part of you that stumbles another person's faith that stumbles yourself into sin, cut it off. Cut it off. Dale Bruner says this is a a matter of kill or be killed. I read a a lot of World War II memoirs and and history, and one thing that draws me in continually in these uh, memoirs is it, it makes me shudder. It's the brutal nature of war, and it's this instinct in these soldiers and these companies of men to survive. So the men in these muddy trenches, they dealt death to their enemies by their own hands. And I mean, it's so up close and primal and personal, often looking their enemies in their eyes. And in a flash, in a moment, they have one gut-wrenching choice. It's kill or be killed. It's cut or be cut. It's shoot or be shot. There are people in history who didn't recognize that Jesus was speaking in hyperbole here. Hyperbole is an overstatement that's meant to make a solid and a, sh- and a sure point. It's an overstatement. And so these people, taking in their zeal, taking Jesus' teaching, they gouged out their eyes because they couldn't stop lusting. Or thieves, there are records in history of thieves cutting off their own hands in order to stop themselves from stealing then I can respect, we could probably respect their zeal to want to obey Jesus. But if I followed this, I would look like the Black Knight from Monty Python's Holy Grail. And you would too. And if you have no idea what that reference means, Google it. YouTube it. Jesus is not prescribing self-mutilation for the believing community. That's not what he's doing. Uh, a commentator, David Guzik, he says, mutilation doesn't actually go far enough in controlling our sin because the issue where all of our sin issues from ultimately is from the heart. It's from our seat of desire. So you can cut off your hand, but the desire isn't dealt with. The root is still there. But Jesus is still, though, in his hyperbole, he's using hyperbole to prescribe a kind of ruthlessness over our own sin. The idea being that if your internet causes you to stumble and to stumble others, kill it at the box at the street or the box coming into the house. If your hand is a means of robbing the cash drawer, give up the key. If your mouth and your mind are consumed by gossip, stop asking all the questions and saying all the things. If your angry mouth issues angry curses at your wife and kids, figure out and deal a death blow to your heart issue because it's from there that the curse issues. It's from the heart. One theologian says, he who is not careful to avoid offense himself will actually cause offense in others. 
the wisest person ever to live other than Jesus, Solomon, in Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance. Everything, like whatever you do, keep a watch over the health of your internal desires because it's from there, it's from the heart that the springs of life flow from. Your whole life is lived out of your heart, mine, yours. <clears throat> Here's the idea. I owe it to all of you to go hard after the sin in my life. I owe it to you. And you owe it to me and to us, to one another, to go hard after the sin in your life. This kind of humility is the kind that strengthens the entire community. It's not your first responsibility to me to come rooting out my sin. It's your first responsibility to me to go rooting out your sin and vice versa. A famous Puritan, John Owen, or a, a, he's famous for saying this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. We're not neutral on this. We've either got to be advancing or it's advancing against us. And we're in this community together. We're here, collected, a part of all of Life Church. Jesus has sovereignly ordained us to be together. We're here together, and it's popular in our culture and maybe in our lives and in our church community to think that my sin isn't really hurting anyone. I'm a consenting adult, so I'm just going to go ahead and do what I'm going to do. But this worldly ideology and, 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 and lack of wisdom, foolishness, is so ignorant. My sin damages the people around me. And when I damage you, when I damage the people around me, and when that damage is not healed, that damage is transferred then from you and them to other people. What is not transformed in us will eventually be transferred. And so my sin Though I think it's just me, it's just my boulder, it's like that boulder gets dropped into a glassy lake and what happens? There's a crash and there's a splash and there's waves and there's ripples and they continue to work themselves out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet from the epicenter of this splash. My sin can even be a source of your stumbling. Your sin can be a source of my stumbling. Is there any sin in your life that God is asking you to kill? Is there any sin in your life that God is asking you to kill? Dale Bruner, he says that, before I go on to the quote, name it, would you? Name it for yourself. Write it down. Search your own heart. Take a moment. Is there any sin in your life that God is asking you to kill? It's probably not the first time in this moment that you've heard him ask you to, to kill it. So it's probably right there on the front end. You know what it is. Bruner says that Jesus' approach to such problems is not to humor them. It's to cut them out immediately and to throw them as far away as possible. A kind of heroism is called for here. A kind of violence, albeit with oneself, that is Christian. It's Christian violence. The repentant, discipled life often hurts. We do violence against our sin. 
The repentant discipled life often hurts. We must say this to ourselves and to our pleasure-seeking church more often. But, he writes, discipled hurting is only for a while, and its long-term reward is life. There's, a, there's life at the end of this hurting, this surgery. Genuine discipleship does hurt, he writes, but con- consider the rewards. And I would say, consider also the consequences. It's better, according to Jesus, to walk into life with a humble limp than to be in great shape and proudly jog our way right to hell. The world tells us, our enemy Satan tells us and whispers at us that hell is not real. But the most loving person in all of history is warning you and I that hell is real. Listen to R.C. Sproul explain what Jesus is talking about here in this hell of fire. When Jesus spoke about the everlasting fire and hell fire, he was using a metaphor borrowed from his own culture. Mark tells us that Jesus described hell as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There's a tradition that in Roman times, the garbage dump for Jerusalem was in the Valley of Hinnom, just outside the city. Not only garbage, but the corpses of criminals and the bodies of animals were deposited there. Why did the worm not die? Worms are parasites that attach themselves to a body of a person or an animal. As soon as they have devoured the flesh of that body, the worms die. But in this garbage dump, there was a constant influx of new corpses, so the worms did not die. Likewise, fires were kept burning constantly in the dump to consume the influx of refuse or garbage. This is the awful picture of hell that Jesus painted. R.C. Sproul writes, he says, People are often curious as to whether Jesus was using symbolism when he spoke of hell as a place of fire. And I usually tell them that it is possible the fire is symbolic. They usually sigh with relief. So I go on to say that Jesus used the most terrifying images and symbols at his disposal for a reason. My guess is that the reality is far worse than any symbol could communicate. Consider that. Here's the last point. So first point, humility equals greatness in the kingdom of God part of what it means to pursue greatness in the kingdom of God is to go hard after our own sin and to help others go hard after theirs. And number three, part of what it is to be great in the kingdom of God is we have confidence in our great shepherd who comes to find us when we, when we wander away from him. In the first four verses, we see that we must turn. We, we've got to become like children, willing to be little, willing to be insignificant. In verses 5 through 9, we learn that as we embrace insignificance, as we embrace this Christ-like way of life, it breeds a Christ-like willingness in us to consider others over and above ourselves. So for their sake, we go hard after our own sin. Now in verses 10 through 14, we see how God cares for the one. He cares for the one. He goes after the wanderers who belong to him. 
and he calls them sheep, which means they're part of his family. They're his people. Jesus teaches disciples not to think of ourselves as so great that we would despise and look down on the insignificant ones. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Some you'll notice if you're looking closely that you've got a verse 10 and then you've got a verse 12 and you don't have a verse 11. Some later manuscripts, there are collections of early manuscripts of Matthew, which is what this text is representing. And there's later manuscripts of Matthew that then will include verse 11, which says, for the son of man came to save the lost. See that you don't despise the little ones because the son of man came to save the little ones. Jesus does not look down on the insignificant ones because if he did, none of us would have salvation. None of us would have a relationship with him. David Guzik writes, he says, it's easy to actually despise the humble. They're the losers. They're the kind who will never make it in our competitive and aggressive and get ahead world. And yet when we despise humble people, we actually despise Jesus because he was the lowliest of all, the one who left his glory, left his security, left his seat of power, left his untouchableness and came and lived among us, lived the life we should have lived and then was crucified and killed at our hands. He became insanely vulnerable to his own creation. Jesus makes a statement about these insignificant ones having angels assigned to them that if th these angels have personal access to the king. And we know in the scriptures they teach that, that there are ministering spirits sent out to the church from God to protect and to deliver and to guide. And, but the scriptures don't say how many there are, what volume we get, how many do I get, how many do you get. He just says that there are, there, there are angels here who always see the face of my father who is in heaven. That, that, that means that they... Um, they, they, are, they have access to the king, these angels do, on behalf of the people that they're watching over, which seems pretty significant, that the insignificant ones would have ministering spirits sent to us by God to watch over us and who then go and have court with the king on our behalf. Jesus then turns and he uses this parable of straying sheep and a parable is a little story with a, a, a big truth. And the big truth is that God will pursue his people, certainly the ones who stray. Jesus is the chief shepherd who pastors his people. What's interesting about this parable that Jesus, uh, that, that Matthew offers us in his gospel is that Luke uses it in a different way. Matthew uses the parable to teach the church about the sheep or the disciples, the flock who have gone astray. We were with him and now we're wandering off. He comes to get us. But Luke uses this parable to teach the church about how Jesus seeks out the lost and brings them in for the very first time. This illustration used in two different ways. Well, which one is right? Both. Both of them are right. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is in pursuit of them, offering them gospel hope for their initial salvation. In Matthew, he's offering us hope because we have wandered away and he's bringing us back in his care because he is the good shepherd. So here's where I'll end. I want to end with this, this question. 
how are you doing? How are you doing in your life, in your relationship to Christ and to his church? Are you willing to assess yourself? Are you willing to ask yourself, what is the greatness that you are in pursuit of? Does Jesus have a priority for you that you do not agree with? And are you willing to return to his priority over your priority for yourself? When I ask, are you astray right now? Do you recognize that you are astray? Jesus is on your heels. He's in pursuit of you at this very moment, speaking to you by his Spirit. And I want to assure you, because he assures you, that responding to him with childlike trust will be met with rejoicing from him. As you respond to him with childlike trust, he will respond to you with rejoicing. You're a sheep, so return. Please, look at his response, rejoicing. It's not anger. It's not punishment. It's not stonewalling. It's not a list of chores to earn your keep. Your Lord rejoices when you come home to him. That's his posture. That's his care. That's his demeanor. That's his promise. So come home. Please come home. And to those of you in the room who may, you're saying, I, I don't have a home to come to. I've never, I've never come to him in the first place. But you have a longing to belong in this community and to the Lord, most importantly. Your invitation is to put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, to be brought into the community, and then it's to continue with your life and your mind and your heart and your desires to trust him and trust him again and again and again and again. And I assure you that you will never, never, never regret that decision, but the good shepherd will always show up in your life and he will never lose any of those who have been given to him. And what he has begun in you, he will bring to completion. And this is the promise for the one who has come home for the very first time. And this is the, this is the promise for the sheep who has wandered off and it was brought in again by our great shepherd who pursues us when we wander. So church, let's not, please, let's not misunderstand greatness. With God's strength, let's embrace humility. Let's fight our sin to the death. And let's trust our Lord to come and get us when we wander, to keep us. Pray with me. Father, would you speak to us? Jesus, would you make this truth in your word ring true in our ears and our hearts? We pray this and trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.